minute. Let's have a word of prayer then to begin our time together. Oh, Lord God, you are the one in whom we have our life and our being. Sometimes we are amazed by all that you do, amazed by the blessings of life. Other times we are confused and upset and bewildered by all the things that go on in life. Sometimes we look at our own lives and the peace and prosperity that we enjoy and we feel sad and guilty about others who do not have these things. Sometimes we look at our lives and think that we're the only ones who have any troubles at all and our troubles seem to overwhelm us. But as we look at others, we see that everyone faces something in life. Sometimes we pray to you wondering if you hear. Sometimes we pray with a deep sense of your presence. But in all of these ups and downs and comings and goings and faithfulness and fearfulness, we know that you are still God. We trust that. We hope that. We count on that. And so as we come to you by studying your word, by sharing with fellow travelers along the way of Jesus, we ask that you would speak your word to us today, the word that you would have us to hear, the word that you need for us to hear, the word that you know that we need to hear, and that in hearing we would be continually transformed into the people that you mean for us to be, people like Jesus people who, despite all the trouble and tribulation of the world, still could know you in a deep and intimate way and find strength for living with joy, with hope, with love, with forgiveness, with peace. These things we lay before you as we invite you now to come and be with us, all for the sake of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Um, the last couple of days, um, or yesterday and today, as I shared this story uh, from Exodus, uh, with our Lacosta Glen folks, and then this morning uh, with with the men, um, we we all noted that there's so much going on in the world today, particularly of course in Israel and Palestine, uh, that that in a way that's all we really want to talk about. Uh, but it's also true that this passage talks about that, and so this is one of those moments when we're going to read an ancient story, you know, three thousand years old, um, that that tells us about things that are going on today in the world. So I think it probably best if we dive into this uh, in just a moment. Uh, before I do that though, um, I was asked earlier at the men's Bible study um, if we could have a time together uh, when we share uh, about what is going on in the Middle East. And some folks would like to hear from me about my perspectives of things. I've uh, been to Israel once, been to Lebanon and Syria many times, have some different perspectives. Uh, others of you have, have been and have perspectives. But let me ask if you would be interested in spending an hour, maybe 90 minutes together at some point in time in the next uh, I don't know, two, three, four weeks. It depends on how long it takes to pull it together. But would you be interested in such a conversation that simply focuses on that? Uh, if, if you would, let me see. Okay, okay. Uh, then, then maybe if, if there's only one person that's interested, uh, as long as it's not my mother or my wife, uh, if, if they're interested, then by golly, we're doing it. Uh, <laughs> so there's plenty of you interested. So um, we'll try to put something like that together. Uh, and let me ask you to help remind me that we're going to do that. So I'm looking at my clerk of session uh, who, who reminds me of all kinds of things all the time, which is a beautiful thing. Thank you for that, Laura. Okay, let's dive into the Exodus passage. I think it will help us 
even though there's a little bit of repetitiveness in this because it's an oral tradition. Let's just read through this whole section. We won't always be able to do that because sometimes we've got several, several chapters to cover at one time, but this whole section is really one story. So let's read through it, get it on our heads, then we'll start to, to, to chat about it. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go so that they may celebrate a festival to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should heed him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has revealed himself to us. Let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness to sacrifice to the Lord our God, or he will fall upon us with pestilence or sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their work? Get to your labors. Pharaoh continued, Now they are more numerous than the people of the land, and yet you want them to stop working. That same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people, as well as their supervisors, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But you shall require of them the same quantity of bricks as they have made previously. Do not diminish it, for they are lazy. That is why they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on them. Then they will labor at it and pay no attention to deceptive words. So the taskmasters and the supervisors of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be lessened in the least. So the people scattered throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent saying, complete your work, the same daily assignment as when you were given straw. And the supervisors of the Israelites, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why did you not finish the required quantity of bricks yesterday and today as you did before? Then the Israelite supervisors came to Pharaoh and cried, why do you treat your servants like this? No straws given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. Look how your servants are beaten. You are unjust to your own people. He said, you are lazy. Lazy, that is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work, for no straw shall be given you, but you shall still deliver the same number of bricks. The Israelite supervisors saw that they were in trouble when they were told, you shall not lessen your daily number of bricks. As they left Pharaoh... They came upon Moses and Aaron, who were waiting to meet them. They said to them, The Lord look upon you and judge. You have brought us into bad odor with Pharaoh and his officials, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned again to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you mistreated this people? Why did you ever send me? Since I first came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has mistreated this people, and you have done nothing at all to deliver your people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Indeed, by a mighty hand he will let them go. By a mighty hand he will drive them out of his land. Wow, there's a ton of stuff in here. 
So I hope you're ready to stay till noon. Let's call in some pizza. No. <laughs> okay, so the battle begins, right? So far in all of Exodus, we have read about the plight of the people and how God has laid his claim and call upon Moses to do something about it and gotten Moses ready for that, even though Moses objects. And now the battle starts. Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and say, the Lord says to let us go just for three days. And Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? I don't know this Lord. We hear that interchange as people who know some things or believe some things that Pharaoh did not know, that Pharaoh did not believe. And we hear some things in this story because of the English translations and the ways that we have passed the stories down through the centuries. Remember this, when you and I hear the Lord, what do you think about? You think about God. You think about one God, the only God, the God who pretty much most of the world, if they believe in God, agrees is God. We have a lot of different ways of talking about God, but we agree that there's one God. Well, that's not the case in Pharaoh's day. In Pharaoh's day, there were many gods. Gods were more or less localized. They had control and authority over a certain group of people or a certain region. And in ancient Egypt, there were many gods. In fact, in ancient Egypt, the Pharaoh himself was considered to be divine. When Moses says, the Lord says we have to do this, what Moses says is Yahweh, not, not generic God, but the God that I know by the name of Yahweh. And so Pharaoh hears that Moses' God has a claim, has, a, has a, a plan for Pharaoh's life. And Pharaoh says, well, I don't know your God. Let me introduce you to my gods, right? I don't know your God. I don't know anything about him. He must not be much of a God. There's kind of a subtext to all this. He must not be much of a God, otherwise you wouldn't be in this horrible situation you're in. And oh, by the way, you have your God, but I have my gods, and even more so, I am a God. So who is your God? Who is your God? That's the nature of the interchange that goes on between Moses and Pharaoh. It isn't as if Pharaoh is saying, I'm going to ignore the one true living God of all the universe. No, not at all. Not at all. Pharaoh is saying to Moses, I don't, I've never heard of your God. And, and that's true, by the way. Actually, Moses didn't know that much about God until just a little while before he went to see Pharaoh, right? We've told how Moses encountered God on the mountain and learned God's name. So all of that is happening here. And so a battle ensues between Moses and Pharaoh that's not just a battle between Moses and Pharaoh. It's a battle between their gods. It's a battle that's asking who actually is God, which God has the power. And God, Yahweh, the Lord, the God that you and I confess is the one true only God, that God continues to say to Moses, it will be okay, I'm going to take care of it. But it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. So there's a cosmic battle going on here, not just a political issue between an oppressed, enslaved people and the powerful people in charge of everything. There's a cosmic battle between good and evil, between the one true God and all the other things that would be 
God. That's what's behind all of this. Now, I'd propose to you that in, in a sense, in all battles between good and evil, there's not just the battle that goes on at this level down here where we are, but there, there is a cosmic spiritual battle that is going on. There are parts of the Christian body, the wider Christian body, that talk about spiritual warfare. And this, in a sense, is spiritual warfare. Who is the God who controls? Who is the God who gets to lay his claim and make his plan and say, this is the way things should be? Lots of people have different ideas about what God wants and what God would do. And there are lots of people who don't even believe in God or want to fight against God. So there's a spiritual battle going on here. And the question that Pharaoh asks really is a question for all of us. By the way, I would encourage you, and this is one of your questions at the end, I would encourage you to try to get into the skin of Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh represents a normal human being who thought he was God, right? Pharaoh's not the first person to think he was God, and he certainly isn't the last person to think that he's God, to think that he's got all the answers, that you should trust what he says, right? So where are you in Pharaoh, in that person? By the way, by the way, uh, one of the men's Bible study folks uh, emailed me yesterday. You know, I, whenever I think of Pharaoh, I picture Pharaoh, and he has the face of Yule Brenner, right? Okay, Yule Brenner, who was about, Yule Brenner was the optimum sized person. Did you know that? He was about this high, right? Uh, yesterday was the anniversary of Yule Brenner's death. He died in 1985. He was an old man. He was 65 years old. Ooh, I know. Boy, I just got your attention, didn't I? <laughs> Anyhow, so Moses, Charlton Heston, comes to Yule Brenner, Pharaoh, and says, let the people go. And then how does Pharaoh respond? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's pretty much. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Pharaoh says, I don't know your God. Your God, the, the upshot is your God doesn't have any power. And by the way, now that you've made this demand, he says, I'm going to respond. Now, Pharaoh's response and the things that happen after it with Moses and Aaron, with the other people of Egypt, with the people of Israel, with the Hebrew slaves. What goes on in the, the interchange in the development of this story is a classic description of what happens in human society when one group of people assume control over another group of people. This is often discussed in terms of the oppressor and the oppressed. Look at how this plays itself out. Pharaoh's response is not to say to Moses, oh, that's an interesting request. Why don't you have your people talk to my people and let's see if we can rearrange uh, the labor agreement that we have each other and maybe you can make some concessions and we'll make some concessions and you guys can come off of your strike and go back to work. That's what we would expect to happen today, right? It's not what happens. It's not what happens. Pharaoh laughs in Moses' face, and the first thing he says to Moses, he says, you know, the reason that you guys want just three days off is because you're lazy. Because you're lazy. 
Pharaoh begins a process that has already started, actually, but he continues the process of dehumanizing, of subjecting the Hebrew slaves to less than human status or of lesser status in the human sphere of things, right? What happens when you call someone lazy? Is that a good thing? Nope. Nope. Lazy, good-for-nothing, ignorant, slow, All of that means that Pharaoh is saying to Moses, you guys are just lazy. You deserve to be where you are. You deserve to be where you are. That happens anytime one group of people exercises power over another group of people. You can look at any period of history that covers every racial, ethnic, political, language subgroup And everybody has been oppressed at some point in time, and everybody has been the oppressor at some point in time. In the United States of America, in the first half of the 1800s, the commonly accepted political, sociological, psychological, anthropological truth about people from Africa was that they were lazy. They were slow. They weren't even necessarily quite human. Therefore, it was okay to treat them like animals. You can read that in the political philosophy of the day. You can read that in the sermons of the day from even Presbyterian ministers. Not all, but some. If you look at the propaganda that was established by Joseph Goebbels, under the leadership of Adolf Hitler in the 1930s. You will see a whole line of of publicity, of messages, of, of subtle ways of saying to the German people that Jewish people were evil, that they were substandard, that they were in all kinds of ways to be feared and mistreated. It's called dehumanization. If you look at American political philosophy from the 1700s and 1800s, even continuing after the Civil War, you see that America found it okay to exterminate, to murder Native American people because they were what? Savages. Savages. Now, that's just three examples that you know about. Every other situation where one group of people takes over another group of people, that same kind of language, that same kind of process happens. And that's what's going on in Pharaoh's mind, saying to Moses, you guys are just lazy. And then Pharaoh does something else. He says, I'm going to respond to what you and I would think of as a reasonable request. Why can't these folks have three days off? Right? What does Pharaoh say? Not just, no, go away. He says, no, because you have even dared to ask for something, I'm going to make it harder on you. You're going to have to go find the straw to make the bricks and make just as many bricks as you have made before. That is typically the response of an oppressive system. When those who are being oppressed try in any way, shape, or form to escape their situation, the oppressor responds by oppressing even more. Even more. You asked for this, I'm going to take it away from you. 
And notice what Pharaoh says. He says it right here. It's very clear. He says, you know what? If I make them work all the harder and beat them, they're going to forget about this business, about getting to go worship their God for three days. That's also a trick of oppressive systems, is to keep, keep the people so weak, so powerless, so tired, so focused on mere survival that they do not have the wherewithal to rise up against a system, right? All of these things are going on. Something else goes on then, right? Doubt and dissension begins to infiltrate the ranks of the Hebrew people. Moses does not initially blame Pharaoh, even though it's Pharaoh who has said, nope, you can't do this and I'm going to make it harder for you. Moses complains to God, right? If anybody, it's Moses and God who should be lockstep with each other. Moses with God, of course. But Moses goes and blames God and says, God, I did what you, what you told me to do and you've just made it worse. In that way, Pharaoh is dividing Moses and God. And then Moses and Aaron go out among the Hebrew people, the other Hebrew people, and they blame Moses and Aaron. They said, why did you go ask for such a stupid thing? There's a battle going on now. There's dissension in the ranks. There's division among the Hebrew people. And they blame God. Moses blames himself. Everybody's blaming each other for this terrible situation that now exists. And even more so, something else that we see is that the Hebrew people had grown accustomed to their, to their situation. They had learned how to manage their situation. And now it was going to get worse. And some said, you know, it's not worth this battle. Let's just keep being the slaves that we are, and at least we know what the system is, and we'll just tolerate it. We'll just put up with it. Later on, when the people are out in the wilderness, and they are starving and thirsty and wondering about what's going to go on, they say, Moses, let's just go back and be slaves again. That was better than what we had before, right? Now, these are the same dynamics that happen anytime there is an oppressor and the oppressed. Even the people who are oppressed begin to believe that they deserve what they have. And they are stuck in such disastrous situations that they can't muster the wherewithal to respond. And then they also have to think about whether or not it's worth the response, whether it's worth the battle, right? Isn't it easier to give in to someone who has power over you and just go along with what they're saying so that you don't even get into worse trouble. Now, I'd propose to you that those dynamics are not just dynamics that occur among huge groups of people. They are also interpersonal dynamics. And let me give you an illustration. As I give this illustration, I'm aware that in this room, uh, as in every room, there may be people who have experienced these in very personal ways. And all of this is extremely painful, but let's go right there. We're not afraid of pain, right? You see this same dynamic happen when a husband and wife or a, two spouses are in a dysfunctional, abusive relationship. One of the very first counseling situations that I encountered as a brand new, incredibly wise pastor at the age of 25 was a beautiful young woman about my age who came to talk to me about the abusive relationship she was in with her husband. And generally it is 
husband against wife. The husband is the abuser, the wife is the abused. One of the reasons it's so very, very difficult to break that relationship is because the, the husband has continually told his wife that she deserves what she gets, and she begins to believe that she deserves what she gets. And she finds it too difficult to try to change her situation. It's too threatening. It's too hard. And it's very, very difficult to get someone to change that narrative, partly just because change is difficult. Moses is precipitating change here that's going to lead to even more suffering on the part of the Hebrew people for a while, at least. And that's the way we are. We tolerate the situation that we have because fighting against it is going to cost something, and we're not sure that we're going to end up better at the end. And that's the nature of, of change, actually. We don't change anything until it becomes so difficult to stay where we are that it's worth the risk of trying to change something. It's even, it's even true of our physical bodies, right? All of you are sitting right now in a particular way. And in a little while, your body's going to start to hurt and be uncomfortable because you're sitting the way that you're sitting. And you're going to go to the trouble to move. You're going to change how you're sitting. It's just, it's physical. It's just the way it is, right? Or, or at night, you wake up in the middle of the night and you're freezing cold, but you're not sure it's worth the trouble to reach down and try to find the blankets, right? Or you need to go to the bathroom and you're not sure it's worth the trouble to get up and get out of bed and go stumble around and try to find the bathroom, right? See, I know you guys. <laughs> Obviously, those are funny. Those are minor examples, but... But the example holds true all throughout human society, no matter how big society gets. Is it worth the battle of trying to change? And Moses has brought the battle to Pharaoh. We don't have any sense that Moses first went to the Hebrew slaves and said, hey guys, uh, there's this God that I met that says he's our God, uh, and he says that I need to do this. Let's take a vote and see if we should. No, Moses just does what God says to do and makes things worse for the Hebrew people. Now, we know that the story is going to continue, and eventually things are going to get better for the Hebrew people. But not quickly, not automatically, and even as good as they get, they're never perfect. That's the way human society is. All this stuff is going on in that, in that interchange, in that conversation. So... As the conversation ensues, as the political wrangling goes back and forth, there's several questions that arise, and that is, who is Moses going to serve? He said, I'll serve Yahweh, but then he goes and serves Yahweh, and then he comes back and says, Yahweh, that didn't work out so well. Can we, can we cut a different deal? Right? Pharaoh says, I'm not serving Yahweh at all. We've already heard that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, right? Uh, you've had that conversation about how it is that had Pharaoh's heart not been hardened, maybe the Hebrew people would still be slaves in Egypt. Who knows? All kinds of things going on. But it's all real. It's all pertinent to your life today, your relationships with other people. But there's more going on than just your relationships with other people. If that comes as news to you, you and I need to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation, Right? Those dynamics play themselves out all the way into international politics.
everything that's going on in the world today. There's nothing new going on in the world today that hasn't already happened. And if we're to follow the trajectory of history, it will happen again in many different ways, in many different places. But there you have it. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, is there hope, right? The same Israel, the same Israel that was delivered from Hebrew slavery, from, excuse me, Egyptian slavery, is the Israel today that now finds itself in a position of power over others. There's a long conversation to be had. It's not all cut and dried. It's not all black and white. There are many different perspectives. But how should the nation of Israel respond to an attack on its own citizens? There are some from the Jewish community who will say that Israel's done it all wrong. They've become the oppressor. They're being fought against. There are others who are saying, no, they're simply fighting for their survival. There's all kinds of ways to look at that. So you see how the Bible, this ancient book, talks about today. Isn't that interesting? Let me stop for a second, uh, and let's take some comments. Let's take some questions, from some, some thoughts on all of this, okay? Terry's got a microphone over here. Good. Wait for the mic. Wait for it. Wait for it. Good. <laughs> Were the enslaved people still followers of God, though? I mean, had they totally abandoned their, their religion and their faith? During their enslavement? Yeah, good question. Were the enslaved people still followers of God, right, of Yahweh? Uh, here, that's a very good question. They knew the stories of Abraham, Jacob, you know, Joseph, Isaac, all those guys. But there was not yet a fully developed sense of who God was or how the people to worship or, or, or what were meant to worship or what was supposed to go on. Um, and so most likely what existed among all that group of slaves was some sense of this one God and their history and their chosenness, but also a bunch of questions about that. It's been hundreds of years since things have gone very well. And so there probably was also a lot of what we would call syncretism, where people would also worship other gods. There was not, there was not really a fully formed sense of the identity of the people. This is why the Exodus itself is so important. When Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, right? Let the people who are descendants of Abraham, who are descendants of the 12 tribes, right? The 12 sons of Jacob. They have a, they have a common sense of history and shared racial ethnic identity, but it's not a very fully formed sense of who they are and what they should be. So they are led out of Egypt, and then they go camp out in the wilderness for 40 years. And during that wilderness period, God tells them in no uncertain terms who he is and who they are meant to be. And so we look at the Exodus experience, that whole story, as the primary formative experience of the nation of Israel, of, of people who were now conscious of their selves as Hebrew people, now Jewish people, the people of God, the nation of Israel. Does that make sense? Um, let me try to give you a similar story from history that, that maybe has some parallels. It's not a perfect example, uh, but I think it helps. Um, when you had um, all the different settlers starting to come over here to the, the North American continent, right? Um, there were already a bunch of people here. 
And we're learning now from footprints that have been discovered in New Mexico that they have been here a whole lot longer than we thought they had been. Uh, there are footprints discovered that say that maybe human beings have been in uh, central North America, what we call the United States, uh, for 20 or 25,000 years. That's 10 or 15,000 years longer than we had initially thought. Um, but those people were here, and then... Uh, there were some Vikings that came over, didn't do very much, really. Then there were a whole bunch of people from the Spanish Empire that came over, right? Uh, the Spanish were here in the southwestern part of the United States 500 years ago. They were here 100 years before, what I like to say is before the Gringos hit the East Coast, right? Uh, my, my mama's family is from the Gringos that hit the East Coast, but then the Gringos hit the East Coast, and, and you come to a time and period, let's, let's pick a, this out of the air, let's say 1775. By the time you get to 1775, you have a whole bunch of Spanish and Native American people living in this part of the continent, and then you have a whole bunch of various and sundry kinds of Gringos living in the eastern part of the continent, and you've got 13 colonies that saw themselves as distinct and separate entities. Among those colonies, you had distinct and separate ethnic groups, right? The English, of course, but sometimes the Scots, a handful of Irish, a handful of French, a handful of others. It was the events of 1776 then that began to say to these 13 colonies, you're not 13 separate colonies, you are one nation with one identity. So it took hundreds of years for that identity to develop. Does that make sense to you? I want to say it's a similar kind of dynamic that goes on uh, in, the, in the, the creation of the nation of Israel as a self-conscious nation, conscious of itself as that nation. Does that all help you? Okay. Yeah, another question. Was Moses' father-in-law the priest of Meridian? Was he Hebrew, or what kind of a priest was he? Yeah, yeah, Moses' father-in-law, uh, Jethro, the priest of Midian, yeah. Um, we're not given to believe that he was part of Abraham's family, right? Now, remember that uh, there's an awful lot of religion going on in the world at that time. Other gods, other beliefs, other systems, right? Uh, we encountered that, was it in the story, uh, was, it, was it Jacob or was it Abraham who encounters, um, uh, what's the guy's name, the priest in Jerusalem? Melchizedek. Melchizedek, yeah, yeah, Melchizedek. There are other peoples who have a deep sense of religion, a deep sense of morality and ethics, even a deep sense of the, the unity of God or monotheism, Right? Uh, the Israelites weren't the only ones. You read the Bible, and the story is told as if the Israelites were the only ones who had this. Well, they weren't the only ones who had some sense of what all that is about. Uh, there were others. And so Jethro and his family, as the priest of Meridian, uh, of Midian, um, was one of those who we want to say was, was a believer in God or gods, right, who was clearly a religious leader, which also made him a political leader. Um, we try to divide those things out because of our history uh, in the modern Western world. But when you talked about religious leaders, typically uh, in the ancient world, they, they were also the political leaders. It was the same thing. So this is one example of how non-Jews, we would call them non-Jews, people that are not, not racially, ethnically from the Abrahamic family are engrafted into the story of the family. 
That happens all throughout the Old Testament, right? And you get to the point of the New Testament uh, where, uh, where some of the Jews are saying, no, you have to be racially, ethnically pure Jewish. Uh, but then, uh, and, and Peter would say that, right? If you're going to believe in Jesus, you've got to have that. But then Paul would say, no, wait a minute. There's a whole bunch of people in our history that weren't racially, ethnically, purely Jewish, part of the, the family of Abraham. They were engrafted in. And so that's where the theology arises that we engraft everybody into a common faith, not a common biological heritage. I'm glossing over things that people have spent their entire life studying and writing hundreds of books about just to discuss the one question, but that's my way of summarizing it all. Yes? When you, when you look at like the Israelites and Pharaoh and the prejudices that they were labeled because of what Pharaoh's oppression, what he wanted to do, you see that in today with the uh, Palestinians and um, Israel right now. Mm -hmm. How do how do you know when when Moses took everybody and they went out in the desert? Moses didn't go, but for forty years, wasn't that to try and break the prejudices? But it doesn't really work, does it? I mean, he thought if they took him out there for forty years, maybe a new generation would come in. Yeah. Yeah, yes, that's part of the dynamic. We'll read more about that. But the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, people say, why didn't, why didn't God just lead the people straight into Canaan, right? Well, the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness was understood as a way of the first generation of Hebrew slaves who had come out of Egypt, they needed to die off. For, several, for the primary reason is that their mentality, if you will, was still a slavery mentality. They didn't know much about God. They were trying to learn new things about God. God was teaching them new things. And God was raising up a new generation who had a different idea of who they could be as a free and independent people serving God and learning who God was and what God expected of them. That's the whole reason for the giving of the Ten Commandments and all the other commandments and the commandments about here's how you're going to worship me, here's how you're going to treat each other. All of that, uh, uh, none of that exists in the story up till the time of the Exodus. And, and so the Exodus is that formative event where over time people begin to change. And the old dies and something new is born into its place, even literally so. Is that not also true of just human society? Right? If you're going to bring something new to bear, ultimately it depends on a new generation being born. Because I don't know about for you, but for me, it's hard to give up the old ways. Some of the old ways are worth keeping. Some are not. Things change. And the older you get, the less you want to change. Right? And so a new generation is raised up. And that's a continual process in human society, in the society of the church. Other thoughts, questions? Where are we? Haven't looked at my watch for a moment. There are some incredibly magnificent questions that I wrote for you um, that I think will be helpful for your conversation here. Um, where do you see injustice in the world today? Injustice, 
simply defined as wherever things are not the way God wants them to be among his people. And who are God's people? All people are God's people. There ain't no people who are not God's people. How have you personally participated in or been affected by battles against injustice? Think about your garden variety Hebrew slave who really had no say in what Moses was doing, right? But they were carried along in that process. They suffered a lot, right? You and I are born into a history, born into a life that is not of our own making, right? It is of the making of generations before, both their successes and their failures, right? I've thought about this a lot just from my own personal history. You might think about it from your history. You know, as I talk about the, uh, the white uh, Anglo part of my family uh, that in some ways oppressed the Spanish part of my family, who themselves had oppressed some of the Indian part of my family. That's in all of us, right? That's all of our history. You don't have to go back very far to find that history for you somewhere, right? In the United States of America, I'm, I, I have been fascinated by studying some of our history that comes uh, from Western Europe. You know, it wasn't too long ago that the English and the Scots and the Irish were all mortal enemies. And it wasn't too long ago that there was incredible oppression and, and murder and mayhem uh, in Northern Ireland, right? Except now most of those people mostly get along. <laughs> um, and you, you, can, you, can, you can describe that kind of history and that kind of situation for any and every, every ethnic group and period of history. If you don't know where yours is, let's just research that a little bit and, and find out where it is. And then you ultimately get to this vision of the church, right? The church, where all are children of God, where there is no east or west, no north or south, where everybody is welcomed into fellowship, where everybody is considered to be equal. Those are things that you and I take for granted, partly because of the influence of the judicial, moral, ethical values built into Western civilization that arise from the Judeo-Christian tradition. But they don't apply equally everywhere in the world, most certainly. And they're even difficult to play themselves out in that part of the world that claims that Judeo-Christian tradition for itself. That's the nature of the world we live in. A couple more questions. Do you see anything of yourself good or bad, in the persons of Moses and Pharaoh and the other Hebrew leaders. Um, I haven't talked about it much yet this year, but every single character in Scripture is, is you. Every single character, including the guy with the red fork tail. Although Scripture doesn't say that's what he looks like. That's Dante who said that's what he looks like, right? So where are you? What about you is like Pharaoh? Really? You want to get out of work? I, you know, I'd have that response when people come to me and say, let's have a party instead of go to work. No, we have work to do. What have you learned from this ancient story about the complexity and subtle evil of situations where injustice exists in the world now? Right? Why did the Hebrews allow themselves over a process of several hundred years to become enslaved in Egypt? 
Did they make some miscalculations and mistakes along the way that they found themselves in that situation? Or are we just blaming them for being stupid and allowing themselves to be enslaved? Right? What was going on with all that? And then what tempts you to give up on God's promises for your own life, right? You have the sense from Moses as he's questioning God and saying, God, this is not working out like you said it was. Let's, let's forget the whole thing. Where are we tempted to do that with God? Those are fantastic questions, if I say so myself. <laughs> Shall we pray? God, thanks so much for giving us to each other as family, for giving yourself to us, your truth, your knowledge, your challenge, your correction. Thank you for giving us hard questions. Thank you for giving us the assurance that no matter what's going on, no matter how difficult life is, you still are God, and we follow you. In Jesus, amen. God bless you, my children.